Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by BetterHelp. BetterHelp is a mental health platform that provides direct online counseling and therapy services via web or phone text communication. You don't even need to use flu powder in order to access a therapist through BetterHelp. I think we can all tell in book five that if you keep your feelings bottled up, it can start to affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off of your chest if you don't have access to Dumbledore's office. I know in my life, therapy has helped me identify patterns to help me interrupt ones that I don't feel like are healthy and find better ways to cope. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online. It's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Sacred Text today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Sacred Text. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is me undies. I love them so much. And Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some me undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of me undies lounge pants and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. Chapter 7. Mudbloods and Murmurs. Harry spent a lot of time over the next few days dodging out of sight whenever he saw Gilderoy Lockhart coming down a corridor. Harder to avoid was Colin Creevy, who seemed to have memorized Harry's schedule. I'm Vanessa Zoltan. And I'm Matt Potts. And this is Harry Potter and the Sacred Text. Matt. You are telling a story on the theme of forgiveness today, which I'm really excited about because you truly are one of the world's most thoughtful academics on this topic. You're welcome, Harry Potter Sacred Text listeners. I've brought you a world expert on such an important theme. I don't know if I'm an expert on forgiveness. I think I'm a person who's trying to redefine forgiveness in a pretty basic way. And for that reason, that means my story for forgiveness might not sound like a story for forgiveness, but it might be a way for us to talk about some of the stuff that happens in this chapter. So I think the problem I have with forgiveness and the reason why I started researching it is because I'm really worried about the way it's often used and abused by power to either shame victims into not feeling the anger that they quite rightly feel. You know, we talked in a previous episode about how anger can be good. Um, And often forgiveness is read as the opposite of anger, like, oh, get over your anger and just forgive. Right. And so it's rushing victims to not feel anger when I think their anger might be quite warranted. And the other thing is that forgiveness is often read as just a simple synonym for reconciliation. And so when you get over your anger, then you can be friends again. But no, like maybe I don't trust you and maybe you haven't made the amends or done the kind of atoning work that is necessary for us to be in relationship again. Right. So. For me, the way I think about forgiveness is just sort of non-retaliation, not returning evil for evil, right? Like, that doesn't mean that I'm not still angry. It doesn't mean I don't get myself safe. It doesn't mean that I don't keep a distance, right? I think choosing not to retaliate is its own kind of moral act and stance. And I think we need a name for that. And I think one name that we could have for it is forgiveness. 
And so the story I'm going to tell is going to kind of touch upon some of these things about like emotion and affect, about retaliation, kind of about like restored relationship or whatever. But yeah, this is this is a story. So in sixth grade, I had my locker next to Mike Patak. You know, sixth grade, several elementary schools merged into a single middle school. And so I didn't know Mike Patak. I'd never met Mike Patak before. At 11 years old, I was relatively large for an 11 year old. But I also, I'm an introvert. I was kind of shy. I had friends and so forth, but I wasn't particularly aggressive or assertive socially. And Mike Patak didn't have a lot of friends, but was super aggressive socially. I think that Mike probably had difficulties in his life that were invisible to my 11-year-old eyes. Anyway, he wasn't super nice to me. And I remember a few weeks into the year, it might have been about this time of the, the academic year, you know, mid to late fall, our lockers were right next to each other. And I had to get to class and I was trying to get my book out of my locker. And Mike was next to me and he was just kind of leaning against his locker. And I would unlock my lock in my locker and pull the locker door open. And as soon as I got it open, he'd just slam it shut, right? So I, I did it again. I undid the lock, pulled the locker open. He slammed it shut. I did it again. I unlocked the lock, pulled the lock down, slammed it shut. And he did this probably 10 or 12 times. And we were both late for class, right? And I started crying because I, I didn't know how, a way out of the situation. I was trying to keep it together. I also, I'm not, I wasn't trying to get into it with Mike. I don't remember feeling a lot of anger at him. I felt a lot of frustration and I felt like I felt trapped. I remember feeling trapped because I didn't want to fight him. But I also remember it like, again, I'm interpreting this through my 11-year-old eyes, but I remember knowing that he was kind of socially marginalized in other ways and that it didn't seem right that I should fight him either. And so this just kept going. And then my best friend at the time, Sean, who was just always late for class anyway, saw that this was going on and he came over and basically like shoved Mike and got up in his face. And they were about to go at it in the way that 11-year-old boys do, like a lot of posturing and, and chest shoving, but no blows. And then a sixth grade teacher came out, Mr. Wietzma, and he started giving, giving Mike Patak the business. <laughs> and I remember Mike saying, Mr. Wietzma, but Sean was about to hit me. And, and Mr. Wietzma saying, and you deserve it, <laughs> right? <laughs> and I remember going into class. This is not a good collision story, but I'd forgotten my book that day. So Mr. Zorhoff gave me a zero. It was a bad sixth grade day for, for Matt. So why is this a forgiveness story, right? The reason is, is because, you know, I may be intervening into the conversation about forgiveness later than, than our podcast wants us to. But I'm thinking about this question of non-retaliation. If this is, the, if this is what is at stake for me in, in forgiveness, to not retaliate. Well, that's what I was doing. And it was totally ineffective. Like, we, my, Mike and I were trapped in this stalemate where he was just kind of enjoying bullying me. Uh, and I didn't have a way out of it. And that's why I was crying. And it took, like, my friend Sean, whose last name, ironically, maybe not ironically, is love, to come over and, like, physically push Mike and threaten to fight him. And a teacher to intervene kind of inappropriately and say that he deserved to be in a fight, <laughs> right, for the situation to end and me to be able to enter Mr. Zorhoff's class. So I don't know if that's a great forgiveness story, but that's the story I'm, that's the story I got. What do you think, Vanessa? I mean, I think it's so interesting because you want to define forgiveness as non-retaliation. And then you told us a story about a time that non-retaliation was insufficient. And so I think that that gets to yep. the heart of like forgiveness isn't about fixing the problem, right? Because a lot of yep. problems, once they happen, a lot of acts of violence or bullying, once they happen, you even if everything goes perfectly after, even if Mike Patak stopped and then apologized, right? You can't go back to before the act of violence, right? Yeah. Like there, things can never be mended entirely. Sort of like Ron's wand, yeah. right? Like all this fellow yes. tape in the world is not going to fix Ron's wand. He's going to need a new yeah. wand. And that new wand is not going to be the old wand. Yeah, I think I think that's right, Vanessa. And you've read my book manuscript, right? So you know that like my whole shtick is I see forgiveness as a form of mourning. It's a way of dealing with harm that we can't undo. There's a line from Marilyn Robinson's book, Gilead, which is a beautiful and complicated novel. But one of the characters says, there is no single transgression. There's a wound in all of humanity. And I think about that too. I think, you know, like I, the reason I was not retaliating, I remember even at 11, the reason, one of the reasons is I think I was just 
I didn't want to get into a fight. I wasn't a kid who likes to fight. I wasn't aggressive in that way. Another reason is because I felt like I understood that Mike was going through something and that getting into a fight with him was not going to fix that for him, right? Right. Yeah, and so like this wound in all humanity is is sort of what I'm basing the non-retaliation on. But it also means if you're the kid with lockers getting slammed shut, you just got to stand there and get your locker slammed shut. And that sucks. And I'm really glad that my friend Sean got in there and did something. And what a privilege for me to be able to say like, oh, I'm still morally whatever because I didn't actually act aggressively. But I sure benefited from the one who did, right? So I, it's a messy thing. Well, Matt, thank you so much for telling that really illuminating story. It's time for the 30-second recap. Can you please count me in? I'd love to. I'm feeling good. I feel like since the live show, I just feel like it's this ease about 30-second recaps for some reason. I just feel very little anxiety. It could be just that we've done so many now. I love it. I'm so happy for you. Vanessa, are you ready? Three, two, one, go. So the school year is like properly up and going. Um, Harry's avoiding Gilderoy Lockhart. Doesn't matter. Colin Creevy is treating him like he's famous. Quidditch practice. Oliver Wood is like, this year we're going to win, throwing shade at Harry for being in the hospital wing at the end of book one. And um, then it turns out that Draco Malfoy is now on the other Quidditch team, but he had to buy his way on. And then he calls Hermione a slur. And so Ron tries to curse him and slugs come out of his body. He's vomiting them. And so they go to Hagrid's hut and Hagrid is just like better out than in. And then they have detention. I didn't even get through half the chapter. You did. You got through most of the chapter. Can you finish the rest of the chapter for me? I'll try to get to it, but I want to, I want to try to do the whole thing. You're so right. I'm not trying to control you. I will rush. I will rush to that final moment. Okay. I will make sure if I, if I'm at three seconds left and I haven't gotten to that, I will just skip whatever else and go there. Great. Okay. On your mark, get set, go. So the school year is going. Ron's wand is still awful. Saturday's approaching. They're excited to go see Hagrid and they, but Oliver Wood wakes Harry up early and he's suddenly Vince Lombardi and they have this awful practice and they are, and then they, they go out under the pitch, but then the Slytherins come and the Slytherins are now Man City. They've bought their way to the top and, and then, uh, Draco says this awful, awful thing, mudblood, and they get into an almost fight, but then the, the wand doesn't work and they go to Hagrid's and Hagrid says, oh, that's awful. And then he gets detention and Harry hears the voice in the wall that's very violent. You did exactly as I said it with three seconds left. I was like, I just got to say it. You did both kinds of football. I did do both kinds of football. You're right. Or for our UK listeners, I did one kind of football and something else. (laughs) So, Matt, I'm not going to lie. I had a hard time finding forgiveness in this chapter. The one place that I feel like is really easy for me to find a way in is Ron's relationship to his wand and to Molly and Arthur, right? Molly and Arthur obviously do not know that Ron's wand is completely broken, but he is unable to learn. And he's at risk of hurting Flitwick. He hits Flitwick between the eyes Uh, not nice. And then he like wounds himself by throwing up slugs, right? This like sin of thoughtlessness with the car has cost him and others like the ability to feel safe in his presence. And so I feel like there needs to not just be forgiveness on Molly and Arthur's side, but like a real attempt at reconciliation between Ron and Molly and Arthur so that Ron can get a new wand and continue to learn and not be a threat to the rest of the world around him. It's also a good example of like, if we're going to call it a new definition of forgiveness that I'm trying to propose as non-retaliation, like why it's useful allowing something like anger, right? Because Molly is angry at Ron. And justifiably angry at Ron and sends a howler in the last chapter to Ron. But she doesn't want harm to come to him. Right. She wishes him only good. Like, the reason she's angry is because she wishes him good. Like, her intention is for his flourishing. Her anger and maybe his sheepishness around their anger is a problem. But it's not a forgiveness problem. It's not because she hasn't forgiven totally. him or because, right, it's it's a problem about, like, Forgiveness is not enough. Like, it's one thing, but it's not the only thing. So let's talk about the other things. How do they repair? How do they have this conversation? How does he actually reach out to them and say, my wand is still broken? How does she react to that without turning towards her anger for what he already did and instead turning towards, like, how do we move forward with this harm that's that's already happened, which is, as you know, reading my book, also something I talk about. But but to to go back to the story I told about my locker and and Mike, as you said, like, the, the harm was done at some point. What's at stake is us 
deciding, okay, how do we move forward? How, how do we actually live with a harm that's been caused in a way that doesn't create more harm in the future? Sometimes that means that you and I are not friends and our relationship isn't repaired, right? And that's okay. It just means this harm was done. How do we live in the future? And this is where the failure is happening here. Like, Ron just doesn't want to talk about it. He doesn't want anybody to know about his wand because he just doesn't want, he's afraid of that anger still. Right. But if we talked about forgiveness as, look, I'm going to be mad for a while, but like we still have to be in enough of right relationship that you will come to me. Right. I mean, I'm not saying that 12 year old Ron should have the emotional maturity to do this, but in a perfect world, 12 year old Ron would write mom and dad. I know you're still mad. You have every right to be but I need a new wand, right? Yeah, absolutely. And like that would actually be a step towards reconciliation because they could, A, like re-express, we are still mad, but we love you and here's a new wand, right? Right. And and so part of what is needed in this cycle is some vulnerability. And what ends up happening because they don't have this conversation is that it actually takes a trauma at the end of the book in order for the reconciliation to happen in order yep. for Ron to get a new wand. And we don't want to rely on trauma <laughs> to bring us back together and to make us realize what matters to us. Right. So this vulnerability piece, I think is an important thing to hold on to for the wrongdoer. Right. Yeah. So here's what I want to talk about with Ron's wand, which is the fight at the end, mm-hmm. right? Like, That fight at the end, I think, is one of the places where we can test my definition of forgiveness as non-retaliation, or at least think about non-retaliation in the context of conflict and how useful it is, as as I sort of did in my story about about my locker and Mike. Because he calls Hermione a mudblood, he uses what is we learn in this chapter is this really awful slur within the wizarding world, right? People react in a way that we can understand them reacting if the slur is as awful as we know some slurs to be in our own language, right? And so everyone gets upset and they start a fight, right? And I mean, this is maybe a plot question. Like, maybe I'm not sure what... To me, it seems like Ron was trying to use his wand to cast a spell. And it, instead of hitting somebody else, it circled back on himself, right? So this is the thing. Is there this critique of retaliation in the in the text? Is the text saying, oh, when you try to cause harm to others... Whether or not you harm them, in this case, he doesn't harm them, but whether or not you harm them, you also, harm comes back upon yourself additionally. And is there this kind of critique of retaliation functioning in this chapter? I mean, I think, as you said earlier, I think that one of the things about situations of harm is that there is no perfect response. Like, that's the nature of harm. The nature of wrongdoing in the world is that there's no perfectly, like, perfect solution to resolve it. Every response to it is going to be fraught and difficult because... That's what makes bad stuff bad, right? So we're grateful that people step in to protect Hermione. And I think that the text wants us to be grateful that people step in to protect Hermione. But I wonder if also the text is subtly suggesting when you do retaliate, some of it comes back on you. Or is it just saying Noah's wand's broken? <laughs> no, I think that these books are feel very complicatedly about retaliation in a way that I yeah. really like. I mean, Hermione articulates it, right? She's like, Ron, it's a good thing that the wand struck you. You would be in big trouble if it struck Draco. Hagrid does too, right? Hagrid says the same. He's like, Lucius would have come down here and yeah. Yeah. And I mean, Ron is like, I don't know what punishment would be worse than throwing up slugs. But I think the book does feel this complicated thing about retaliation. And I mean, throughout the books, right, people are shooting Avada Kedavra curses at Harry and he's doing Expelliarmus back, right? Like, I think that the books do believe to some extent in at least not enacting harm, right? It's at the end of this book, it's going to be comedic relief that Ron's broken wand ends up bouncing this curse off of him, right? Like that Lockhart is the one who gets um, obliviated, his memory obliviated. And so, but even that, right? Like Lockhart was going to do an act of violence. And so it's like put back on him. So I I don't think you're overreading this. I think that the books have duly complicated feelings about attempts at retaliation. Yeah. Yeah, And I think that's, I mean, this is, this is not in the chapter, but you're right. The way that Harry, when people Avada Kedavra him, that he responds with Expelliarmus, right? You can see how Harry's response is aggressive. It's not passive in the sense of like, oh, I'm going to let you just shoot your curse at me. 
but it's also retained some interest in the well-being of the other. Yeah. Like, I actually don't want to annihilate you. I reserve some hope for your future reform or repentance or something, right? So this is one of the questions that, you know, my research I'm trying to raise is like, are there ways that we can even engage in conflict and thoughtfully and use the concept of forgiveness mm -hmm. to help us think through what conflictual actions are the right ones? What, how should we restrain ourselves? When do we have to let go of those restraints? What are the circumstances under which we can continue kind of recognizing the dignity of even those we're in conflict with? despite the fact that we have to protect others or be in conflict, right? Right. I mean, I promise I'll get back to this chapter in a second, but the other thing that this series does is shows that interruptions to conflict also have their own spirals of good, right? So Harry saves Draco's life in book seven, and because of that, Narcissa saves his life, right? Like, there is this, we are in conflict, and yet we need to acknowledge the humanity of one another does get rewarded in the books in a way that I'm not always sure it gets yep. rewarded in real life. But I think yeah. that the books are making a really interesting argument about that. Yeah. I mean, that comment, I think, really, like, takes us to sort of the inadequacy of non-retaliation or whatever. Like, Because what do you do when you want to recognize the dignity and humanity of your enemy, but your enemy actually does not see you as human right. or, in this case, as worth living, right? So like the whole thing about wizarding supremacy, about the denigration of mudbloods and muggles is that we don't know the Death Eaters yet, right? But but the followers of Voldemort, they actually, their position is, no, you are not worth intending good for, right? right? And so you get into a situation where what good does it do to, to recognize the humanity of the other when they don't recognize yours? Like this is the, the signal problem of forms of structural violence, racism, anti-Semitism, and other forms of, of hatred, where exactly the source of the violence is the denial of the humanity of the one who is having violence enacted upon them. Like, I don't know if there's, a, I don't know what the way out of that is. So I know that we have to talk about the fact that Harry heard yes. the, the basilisk, but can we talk about one other thing first? Because I think Hagrid... Yep. In this chapter, it becomes so clear to me that the relationship that he has with Hogwarts is about forgiveness, but not reconciliation. And therefore, he mm -hmm. like has this subversive role. So this is the book where we find out that Hagrid did not commit a crime and yet was like decertified as a wizard for a crime that he did not commit. So Hagrid is a victim. He's a marginalized person as a half giant who Tom Riddle took advantage of. Everybody sort of knew that he didn't do it because if he had been a murderer, he wouldn't have just like been able to stay yeah. on campus. And yet they took his wand away as this like weird half measure. And now he's like living on the margins of Hogwarts. He's never been allowed to finish his education, but he has this wand that he's using to like engorge pumpkins, which is like the cutest, sweetest use of like illicit magic that I could possibly think of. And so I'm wondering if you can help me suss this out about forgiveness, because it seems as though what Dumbledore has done is like privately forgiven Hagrid or privately acknowledged that Hagrid didn't do this, but not publicly advocated for an attempt to right this wrong. And in fact, in this book, Dumbledore just allows more harm to come to Hagrid. And so it's the lack of attempt of reconciliation that allows for violence to be continued to be put upon Hagrid. Yes. I mean, I think my response to your, yeah, I just agree. I mean, I think this is, a, this is the other reason why thinking about forgiveness as sort of the amelioration of anger or whatever is insufficient, yeah. right? We've been talking about forgiveness so far from the perspective of those who are disempowered, right? Where if I've been harmed and I'm in a situation of vulnerability and you have power, I have a right to my anger. That's why I don't want forgiveness to be the eradication of anger. But in the case you just described, Dumbledore's the one with the power, right? And it's not enough for him to say, I'm not angry with you anymore, Hagrid. Go live in your hut and you can't graduate, <laughs> right? But by the way, you're forgiven. For so having we're all a good, spider right? that didn't do anything wrong. Right. So, so we're all good because you've been forgiven. Like in that case, like the anger of the person in power is not actually what matters. What matters is the justice. What matters is like, oh, let's bring you back into the community. Let's actually start to do some of the restoring relationship. Reducing forgiveness to the appeasement or the amelioration of anger 
means the process is over when the anger goes away. And the process is absolutely not over when the anger goes away. Like there's more stuff we need to do. We have to take care of Haggard. We have to bring him in from the cold. We have to rebuild some relationship. We have to acknowledge what we did wrong. Like all this stuff is still yet to be done. Not that that stuff I think is identical with forgiveness, but I think identifying forgiveness as the amelioration of anger or the transformation of negative affect means that the process has just ended too quickly. Yeah. Yeah. Justice for Hagrid. So that's a great example. Justice for Hagrid. That's right. That's right. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason, you can't get back to Grimmauld Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Me Undies. I have lots of kinds of underwear in my drawer, but I have to tell you that my favorite kind of underwear is me undies. I love them so much, and Colette, my wife, is so jealous of them that when Mother's Day came up this year and she wanted a variety of different gifts for Mother's Day, one of the things she wanted was some me undies underwear and also their lounge pants. I have a pair of me undies lounge pants, and Colette deserves a super soft, super comfortable pair of Me Undies lounge pants. There are styles for everyone from all black classics to fun, expressive prints, and they come in sizes extra small to 4XL, guaranteeing a flattering cut for everybody. And like I said already, they have unmatched comfort. Their signature fabric is as soft as a warm hug from your favorite sweater. It's also breathable, stretchy, and oh so comfy, making it ideal for all day wear. MeUndies are also responsibly sourced. They use sustainably sourced materials and work with partners that care for their workers. Get 20% off your first order plus free shipping at MeUndies.com slash HPST. That's MeUndies.com slash HPST for 20% off plus free shipping. MeUndies. Comfort from the outside in. So Matt, there's one huge plot point that we haven't talked about yet, which is that Harry hears what we know later to be like basilisk in the wall right that's what we know later because he is a parcel mouth so he understands parcel tongue and he hears this like creepy sentence i don't know how to make it about forgiveness but it sure happens in this chapter so one way into thinking about this moment in terms of forgiveness is that you know he's he's in detention right and one of the ways that forgiveness is often thought about is in relationship to punishment right as maybe an opposite to punishment or as i've been describing it we've been describing it in this chapter as maybe a way to think through if and how one should punish that our punishment should wish good for the person rather than you know wish them harm and we talked about punishment in a previous episode but the punishments that mcgonagall has assigned here seem both on the one hand to really communicate to these students that that they better never do it again. So there is some good intention in those punishments, but they also seem really like kind of tailored to the misery of these students, right? So, so I don't know, what do you think about that? Is there a way we can think about like tailoring? Like McGonagall knows what she's doing when she sends Harry to, to Gilderoy, right? 
Yeah. Don't you think? Oh, for sure. She knows that this is going to be especially excruciating for, for Harry, right? So is that like, is this exceeding the bounds or is this her communicating because she intends well for, is this like the howler? Because she intends well for Harry, she wants him to really suffer in this four hours signing fan mail. I mean, I think it's more complicated than that, right? I also think that it's the beginning of the school year and a professor has specially requested Harry and like she's trying to model respecting even Lockhart, right? Like, what is she supposed to say to Lockhart? No, you can't make him answer fan mails as detention. Or do you think McGonagall yes. went up to Lockhart? <laughs> yes. But it's not like it's like violent. It's just tedious. It's outside I know. the bounds I feel like, of school work. I think it is also. And also, I feel like even for Lock, I mean, I feel like what well, Lockhart, what? No. Like, <laughs> I, you're asking someone to help you sign your fan mail. Like, do you could do something else with him? Right. <laughs> but to sign your fan mail, that is that's it's address the fan mail, whatever. Address the fan mail. Yes. To deal with his fan mail. I don't think it's just happenstance. It seems to, honestly, I think McGonagall would be perfectly happy at any point in the school year saying to Gilderoy, get out of my face. <laughs> <Sure>. <laughs> right. So if she came with a with a bad, a bad solution to a problem. So can I tell you honestly what I would feel yeah. in this situation if I were McGonagall? I would feel like I'm punking yeah. Harry pretty hard and I would be very yes. amused. I'd be like, this is like right. a really silly way to torture you. You're fine. You can do this for five hours. And like, don't mess with me, kid. If I were McGonagall and I sent Harry to Lockhart for this crime that he committed, I'd be chuckling myself to sleep. I think you're right. She knows. What, that's what I mean. She knows what she's doing. And she is and she is reveling in his in his in his misery a little bit. Right. She thinks, like you said, chuckling to like sleep. Profound misery. It's like annoyance. I would, I, this would delight me till no end. Yep. Friedrich Nietzsche, the philosopher, uh, has this critique of forgiveness. He also has a critique of punishment. Mm -hmm. But one of the things he says is that punishment arises not because we think people deserve it, but because we love seeing other people suffer. <laughs> because it gives us pleasure. It makes us chuckle when they're in misery. I don't think it would make me chuckle if he, like, it doesn't make me chuckle when Umbridge makes him hurt of himself. Of course, yeah. There's right? like a, there's like a threshold that you cross right yeah. yeah i just think that there's a diminishing return on that and i think that yeah this is a sweet spot of you didn't mind being the center of attention arriving to school like that okay Ooh. Ooh. i'll put you close to That's what this good. could look like okay oh i i actually love that right because because that's great because harry has been so uncomfortable with being the center of attention in the way that lockhart invites him to be, forces him to be, or that Colin with his fanhood wants him to be. But I think you're right. I think, yeah, this is the message. This is like, what did you think you were doing when you crashed into school in a car? Like you were drawing attention to yourself in the same way. So this is what it's like. I like that. That's great. It's now time for us to do Lectio Divina. What sentence have you randomly picked? Here's my sentence, Vanessa, that I've picked mostly at random. It was a voice, a voice to chill the bone marrow, a voice of breathtaking ice-cold venom. <laughs> I what? think this part of the book is so silly. No, we have, to put it, we have to put it in context. Can you illustratively convey to our listeners what part of the chapter this comes from yeah so this is when harry is helping lockhart answer fan mail and suddenly he hears something and it's not happening in the room and there's a voice and it is a very scary voice of breathtaking ice cold venom and so and what does this voice say so the voice says hold on i'm gonna do my impression of breathtaking ice cold venom and this okay. is when the voice says, come, come to me. Let me rip you. Let me tear you. Let me kill you. Let me kill you. It's a wild Ooh. thing to say. <laughs> so, yeah, it's a voice that only Harry hears. That is what's going on. Step two, Matt, what other stories does this remind us of? It was a voice, a voice to chill the bone marrow, a voice of breathtaking ice-cold venom. 
what I immediately think of is Henry David Thoreau's Walden. Mm. Because in it, he says that he wanted to go to the woods to live simply, to suck the marrow out of he life. He does say that. And that marrow, that marrow word, like the, the idea of like the chill to the bone marrow associated with the the venom and the snake and the fangs and all the stuff that's other conjured in the sentence, for some reason just makes me think of of Henry David Thoreau and Walden for no other reason than that word. But I'm I'm going with it. I mean, I think that, I mean, there's something about the idea of marrow, which is like so deep inside us, deeper than our bones, right? Like there's something like really essential and maybe speaks back to the thing I was saying before. Like there's a sense in which Harry feels like, even though it's coming from the walls, he also feels like it's coming from inside himself, Yeah, which it kind of is totally. because that's the reason he can understand parcel tongue. Right. And so this idea that it's, that it's so internal to who he is, it's so deep inside of him. I think that's why the that's why the voice asking permission is also scary because if that voice is coming from deep inside you, let me kill you, that, that's a that's a really problematic thing. Vanessa, what does this line make you think of? Well, Matt, it reminds me of Jane Eyre, a book that I've read before. Because spoiler alert, everyone, if you don't want Jane Eyre to be spoiled, fast forward 45 seconds or so. Jane lives in a house where she is constantly hearing this voice, this like m- maniacal laughter is what is said. And screaming and all of these things that she can't make sense of. And the the house, uh, the staff at the house in Rochester tell her that it's this woman, Grace Poole, and Jane doesn't understand why they let Grace Poole just like exist in the house. And then of course it turns out that it is her beloved's wife who is locked up in the attic. And so it's this similar thing of someone hearing a voice and be, having this refrain of like, am am I losing my mind? Am I, you know, am I not tapped into the reality of this house? And then it turns out to be this very real thing. Yeah, I, that's a great one, Vanessa. I, it really is. I mean, because I think what's similar, and it makes me think about if this is actually a trope across literature that Rowling's picking up, like that, that the house bears a memory, right? Mm-hmm. And that like, it's, as you know about Grace, and as is the case with, with Voldemort and Haggard and Myrtle, what's going on is that these places are actually haunted. There are these deep violences in the history that aren't being spoken about. And because they're not being spoken about, the house itself is actually speaking to the folks who are able to hear for whatever reason. Yeah, that's that's a great one. I like it. Jane Eyre is really good. I, J.K. Rowling definitely is engaged with a lot of Victorian Gothic tropes in this book, right? Yeah. Like the Dursleys. Yeah are sure, exactly sure. the same as the Reeds and Jane Eyre and things in Dickens. Yeah. Like there, there's a yeah. lot of Victorian tropes. Sure, sure. Yeah. In these books. Yeah. So step three is what does it remind us of in our own lives? Yeah. So the sentence one more time, Matt, is it was a voice, a voice to chill the bone marrow, a voice of breathtaking ice cold venom. I, yeah, but I've heard that voice before, right? Not, not one I imagine inside myself, but I've had voices speak to me that, that did speak to something that felt even deeper in myself than my bones, right? That like, either because of fear or because of sadness or grief or whatever. Like, I remember this was back in like the late 80s when it was not easy to make international phone calls. And I remember we were sitting at the dinner table and we got a phone call and it was from Japan. And my my uncle had called to tell my mom that my aunt had died. And I don't speak Japanese. Nobody else in my family speaks Japanese. All of us knew exactly what had happened yeah. when my mom's started speaking in Japanese on the phone and it had nothing to do. I'm not like, you know, like, like Terry's a parcel tongue. So he understands what is being spoken, but like understanding doesn't have to do with like the semantic meaning of words sometimes. And I just, that voice is still sort of one that, yeah, it's like, that's hearing a voice. That's, that's one that kind of, you know what it means immediately and you, you wish you weren't hearing it. Well, your story reminded me of when a friend of mine in high school died, the sound her father made in in Judaism, it's your responsibility to physically bury the dead. And the closer you are to the person, the more of earth you're supposed to shovel onto them. And her father only managed to do one shovel full, which I think was excruciating enough. And I mean, like, I, it's been almost 25 years that Brandy has been dead and I can still hear the sound that her father made. Yeah. Marrow, right? Yeah. To the marrow, yeah. Yeah. Whew. 
Okay, Matt, so what does this make us feel called to? It was a voice. I feel so sobered. I was so giddy. And now I'm like, whoa. Yeah, what does this sentence make us feel called to? Well, I just think that what's really interesting here is if using your really great example from Jane Eyre, if we think about these voices as like speaking from the environments that are around us all the time of the injustices and the harms that are in our past, like there's something special about Jane that she's the one that hears. And there's something special about Harry that he's the one who hears. So like, I feel called to listen better because if it's true that these voices are speaking all around us, then the problem is not that they're not speaking. The problem is that we're not hearing, right? And so called to listen, I guess, try to hear what's being said, even if it does chill me to the marrow of my bones, like to to bear that and then to to lift it up. Yeah. Oh, that's beautiful. I mean, the other thing, right? And so I'm just going to build off of yours for what I feel called to is to like also listen to the hearers, right? Because Jane mm, expresses yeah. her concern and everybody is like, no, 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 it's fine. And it's like, yeah. Right. Like, even if you're not the one who can hear. Right. And uh, which I think like speaks to the um, like the profound importance, not of tokenism, but true diversity, because we can all hear different things is to listen to the people who can hear. Yeah. And to trust them. Yeah. To trust that they hear what they're hearing. Yeah. 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 That's great. Well, thanks, Matt. Thank you, Vanessa. That was great. This week's voicemail is from Sarah. Hey, Vanessa, Matt, and the HPST team. This is Sarah calling from Vancouver, Canada. So I wanted to call and offer a blessing to any students at Hogwarts with emetophobia. To clarify, emetophobia is fear of vomit, and this can present as fear of getting sick yourself, fear of watching somebody else be sick, fear of things like the stomach flu. Um, I can imagine that this would happen in magical folk, even though it's been said that illness and disability don't happen in the magical world. And I mean, I just, I don't believe that. Um, And yeah, Hogwarts, I think, would be a really triggering place for students with immutophobia. Um, You know, we see Harry coughing up the snitch in book one. We see Ron with his backfiring eat slug spell in book two. And we see Fred and George testing out their skiving snack boxes in book five. And even just those three scenes, I mean, when I was a kid, that was not a fun thing to watch in movies. And yeah, so I just wanted to offer a blessing to anybody listening, reading, or watching who experiences emetophobia and to the invisible students who we don't see in the books, who I'm sure were super triggered by seeing those things happen. And I also just want to offer a blessing to the people who support those of us with emet. So I like to imagine that, you know, if somebody has emetophobia at Hogwarts, maybe they have a friend who encourages them to actually eat breakfast, even though they're maybe afraid of the food safety, or maybe their friends would cast a bubblehead charm around them if they thought that maybe somebody was going to be sick nearby, or uh, yeah, just friends who are around and supportive. Um, You guys are really important to us, and we appreciate you and your patience. So, Those are my two blessings. Thank you so much for this podcast. Bye. Sarah, thank you so much for this voicemail. I have two thoughts about it. One is that I know that you're quoting J.K. Rowling, that J.K. Rowling said there's no such thing as disability or sickness in these books, which is so funny, right? Because it's in this exact chapter where students have colds and like Madame Pomfrey has to be giving them, you know, that steaming solution for them. And so I just JK Rowling is just such a bad reader of her own books. It's just a reminder of that. But also that we all have things that trigger us and upset us and you know and those are complicated and it's hard to walk through the world when we all have these buttons that can be pushed. And so I love that what you're pointing us to is that what makes it easier is friends who have patience with us and who know what these triggers are and can help 
put bubble charms around us when they see that, you know, something is happening that might upset us without judgment, right? Because we all have these things. Yeah, thank you, Sarah, so much for this voicemail. And as Vanessa said, and as you reminded us for helping us to call attention to and to be grateful for those good friends of ours who do put bubble charms around us, like like my friend Sean did in that in that story of some bullying that I told earlier in the chapter. We depend upon these people in our hard places, and it's always great to be reminded to be grateful for them. It's now time for us to remember members of our community who have been lost. Vivian Faye Milius, who was 66, a mother of little women and a children's librarian. Michael Gross, who was 39 and a father of two, a husband, an avid reader, and a friend. Joan Marzullo, who was 96, a strong and loving matriarch. Michelle Nato, who was 32, a friend, social butterfly, and creative writer. Marcy Jows, who is 57, open-minded and a mother of four. And Greta Plowman, who was 100, a great-grandmother, a vegetarian, activist, and an inspiration. May their memories be a blessing to us all. Matt, it's now time for us to offer our own blessings. Who would you like to bless? Vanessa, I would like to bless Colin. He is irritating in this chapter, but his irksomeness is so different than Lockhart's. He's starstruck by everything, not just Harry. Harry just like kind of distills all the wonder and joy that Colin has about this new life that he's discovered in himself. It all is distilled into Harry, and it's not fair that Harry's become the object of it, but it it's, comes from such an innocent and good place for Colin. So I want to bless him for that. And I also want to bless him because when Draco calls Hermione a mudblood in that moment, that word radiates out to others in the crowd who are there who also don't have quote-unquote pure blood. And that includes Colin, right? And so in the midst of all this wonder and this amazing place that Colin has discovered and that he celebrates, he's also just been kind of introduced to the dark side of it in this moment. And so I want to bless him. Bless him for that. How about you, Vanessa? Who would you like to bless? I want to bless Hagrid for things that we talked about in the episode, but also just for being such an amazing teacher to Hermione in this moment. You know, I think that Ron, Harry, and Hermione go to Hagrid and tell him that this horrible word has been said, right? And Hermione doesn't even know what it means. And Hagrid just takes such good care of her. And I think really is like, oh, it's a horrible word. It doesn't mean anything, right? Like it's not real what it's based on. There isn't a spell in the world that our Hermione can't do. And I think I really want to bless him for the hour in that. The like, our Hermione is just... Mm-hmm. Such a beautiful claiming of her. And I just love Hagrid. <laughs> I want to bless Hagrid for being awesome. So Matt, next week we're reading chapter eight, the death day party through the theme of frustration, which was suggested to us by Alicia. That sounds great. I can't wait to talk about frustration. Yeah. We are produced by Not Sorry Production, which is a feminist production company. Our executive producer is Ariana Nettleman. We are edited and produced and endured by AJ Yaramas. Our engineer is Erica Wong, and our music is by Ivan Paisau and Nick Bull. We are distributed by Acast. We'd like to thank Sarah for their voicemail this week, Laura Glass, Julia Argy, Nikki Zoltan, Casper Turkyle, Stephanie Paulsell, and everyone who sent in the names of their loved ones.
think Matt, we should like develop a fake character for AJ and project that into <laughs> the bloopers. Like, okay. Should he be uh, like competing on the bodybuilding circuit? <laughs> wow. AJ, you look swole. Yeah, AJ, yeah. I mean, your lats, your lats are just so defined. How is the bodybuilding going? Are you, dr- oh, AJ's drinking a protein shake, everyone. It is, yes. He had to stop to go get a more a protein, protein shake. shake. Yep. D- is, does your, does, is there a bodega that makes a better one than another bodega? AJ, <laughs> stop yelling at us. Oh my God. This week's episode of Harry Potter and the Sacred Text is brought to you by Redfin. Let's say for some reason you can't get back to Grimold Place, so you need to find a new home. If you're like me, you would go to Redfin. Redfin updates their listings every two minutes and sends you personalized recommendations, so finding the home that's perfect for you has never been easier. If you see something you like, just book a tour straight from the app. And when you're ready to buy, an experienced local Redfin agent can guide you through the whole process. And if you're looking to sell, Redfin agents know how to get you the best price possible for your home. That's because they sell twice as many homes as other agents. With a listing fee as low as 1%, Redfin's fees are half of what others often charge, which means you'll have more money to put toward your next home. They even have a function where Trelawney will tell you whether or not she can see you in this house. Redfin. It's how Molly found the burrow. Download the Redfin app to get started. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.